Chapter Thirty One of The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Book. The great amphitheatre was filled to its utmost. There is really no more attractive spot to be found than that amphitheatre when it is lighted up of an evening. At least, so all Chautauquans think. There is something very fascinating in those rows and rows of circling seats, rising high and higher, filled every one of them with people. If you love to study faces, a seat on the platform of the Chautauquan Amphitheatre is the place for you. There are so many people, so many different types of character represented. Then there is the view of the platform itself, filled, crowded with eminent men, doctors of divinity, lawyers, judges, statesmen, orators. That platform is really a grand sight when it is brilliantly lighted, and every seat is taken. Back of it is the great choir platform, crowded also, rows and rows of young, bright, interested faces. It is a charming sight enough even before they burst into song, adding their trained voices to complete the effect. It is of no use to attempt to describe the amphitheatre of an evening. Dear old Chautauquans, just shut your eyes and see it for yourselves. Isn't it beautiful? Well, it was full. The people good-naturedly crowded closely and made room for one more. There is always, at Chautauqua, an effort to make room for one more. The preacher on this particular Sabbath evening was Dr. Meredith. All the people who had heard him the afternoon before, in the CLSC, wanted to hear him again. All the people having friends who had heard him wanted to be numbered among the hearers. This class contributed largely to the gathering numbers. Besides, the education of Chautauqua is to go to church. When the bells ring, there is a sort of fascination about it. An old Chautauquan cannot help looking for her hat and hurrying towards the centre. I hope he will take a magnificent text, said young Monteith, as he settled himself to be a listener. Jack Butler chanced to be his companion, and at this point regarded him with surprise. I did not know you thought there was any magnificence in his present textbook to select from, he said inquiringly. Certainly I do, and one well acquainted with Kent Monteith would have seen that he was annoyed. He was much too scholarly to like such a wholesale way of putting his peculiar views. Certainly I do. I am not such a fool, I trust, as to be unable to see the matchless imagery of language, the display of rhetoric and logic and intellectual power generally, as they appear in the Bible. One need not necessarily subscribe to all the dogmas taught in a book in order to admire it. That is true, Jack said meekly, feeling himself quenched, and then both waited for the text. Simply four words. Thy testimonies are wonderful. Something very like a sneer marred the handsome face of Kent Monteith. His hope of listening to successive flights of eloquence, with some of the grand passages of the Bible for starting points, faded, and he resigned himself to listen instead to a series of platitudes about the excellency of a book in which he did not believe. Still, sit back though he did, with folded arms and indifferent look, it was impossible not to give thought to what followed. It may be well for us, said the speaker, to pause for a moment on the threshold, and consider the marvellous antiquity and vitality of this book. 
straightway a scholar as in some lines at least kent monteith certainly was took up the thought and admitted to himself what he might not have mentioned to another that the bible really was a very old book then he listened begun in the arabian desert ages before homer sang and finished fifteen hundred years after on an island in the aegean sea this book has come down to us from that remote antiquity unscathed and entire and is as fresh and as full of life to-day as when the prophets and apostles first indicted its burning words and its power and influence were never more so great in the world as they are now this is a wonderful fact it is a unique thing let us turn aside and see this great sight i need not remind you that many a book that once bid fair for immortality has long since gone down to oblivion of all the millions of books which have been written since the dawn of literature how few even of the very best of them have escaped the ravages of time and the forgetfulness of men though the shelves of mighty libraries groan with the learned labours of the past it is true of most of the volumes therein contained that like the bodies of the egyptian kings in their pyramids they retain only the grim semblance of life amid dust and darkness and decay among the pages of the sacred record alone has the lapse of ages gathered no rust now no one in that great audience knew better than kent monteith that this statement and other kindred ones which followed it were true actually the knowledge came home to him so forcefully at this time that he wondered curiously how it was that doubt and unbelief first crept into his mind concerning this old and wonderfully preserved book there was nothing in the manner of the speaker and in the rush of his burning words which held the handsome-faced young sceptic and obliged him to listen yes compelled him to walk step by step through the logical path which the lecturer pursued and constantly admit its truth when he lifted the massive bible to the view of the audience and said the fact that i hold this grand old bible in my hand to-night is one of the most stupendous miracles ever wrought by god almighty there was something so convincing in the very act and in the lightning-like train of thought which it suggested that kent monteith felt simply annoyed at the sarcastic smile which played over jack butler's face as the latter turned to him for sympathy he moved impatiently almost turning his back to jack and all the time lost not a word of the rush of eager sentences from the stand no book has ever been so persecuted and trampled upon if i could bring to this platform to-night a man concerning whom you were certain that he had outlived the centuries who had been flung into the sea and not drowned who had been cast into the fire and not burned who had been made to drink a deadly poison and was still alive and well would you not say that the broad shield of omnipotence had been over him and he had lived and moved and had his being in the heart of a perpetual miracle this bible is that man it has been flung into the sea and yet not overwhelmed it has been cast into the fire and has refused to burn at this point kent monteith met the gaze of young robert fenton's astonished searching eyes despite the man of the world's habitual self-control a slight flush appeared on his face as he recognized the fact that this statement though incapable of contradiction 
had but the day before been treated by him in such a manner that Robert was left at liberty to draw an exactly contrary conclusion. The questioning in those earnest young eyes was so apparent that Mr. Monteith found cause for thankfulness in the fact that half a dozen seats divided them. He was not prepared just then for a question from the lips. When the speaker reached the sentence, The Bible is not a book of science, Jack Butler nodded and smiled triumphantly, then leaned forward and whispered, He has to admit its weakness after all. I thought he was going to make it wonderful throughout. This whisper grated terribly on Kent Monteith's more scholarly mind. He felt sure that even Jack Butler, exceedingly superficial scientist though he was, would be made to see plainly the folly of his positions before the sermon was concluded. The very next sentence proved the truth of this. It never was designed to teach men any other science than the science of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. But there are in the Bible, in illustration of this essential truth, scientific allusions, allusions to the facts of the physical universe, to facts that were not known to men when the Bible was written and these allusions of the Bible are found to be in the strictest harmony with the well-ascertained facts of the latest science. Here again the superiority of the Bible appears, for in this harmony with the discoveries of science it stands in striking contrast to all the sacred books of the heathen nations. All the ancient systems of religion, and all the philosophers and wise men of old, so far as they are known, maintained notions in science as absurd as their theology. In Greek and Latin philosophy, for instance, the heaven was a solid vault. Aristotle called it a sphere, studded with stars. According to the Egyptian sages, this world was formed by the motion of air and the upward course of flame. In the Hindu philosophy, the world was a flat triangular structure, seven stories high, resting on the backs of high elephants, who, when they shook themselves, caused earthquakes. The ancient astronomers concluded that there were about a thousand stars. Hipparchus believed that there were ten hundred and twenty-two. Ptolemy differed from him, and made the number ten hundred and twenty-six. Mahomet said the mountains were put on this earth by God to keep it still. Now it is a striking fact that not one of the forty different writers of the Bible, most of whom lived in the vicinity of one or other of the nations that held these views, has written a line that shows favor to one of them. The harmony of the Bible with the discoveries of science in our day is a wonderful thing, and a strong proof of its divinity. For instance, it speaks of the world as a globe, and as suspended on nothing. It tells us that the heavens are not a solid sphere, but a boundless expanse that light is antecedent of the sun, and independent of it, thus anticipating the generally received theory of science to-day. When it speaks of the stars, it does not talk of a thousand, but says they are an innumerable host, which the telescope shows to be not even a figure of speech. Then followed certain specially pertinent illustrations of the same fact, and Kent Monteith again found himself embarrassed by the close proximity and searching eyes of Robert Fenton. He had an uncomfortable consciousness of having listened in the boy's company to certain statements of Jack Butler's, which these illustrations by Dr. Meredith directly controverted. He had listened in silence, 
equally amused by the display of Jack's ignorance and the boy's earnestness in trying to meet him. He wished now that he had helped young Robert. Then at least the eyes would not have been reproachful as well as questioning. Now, said Dr. Meredith, we need a caution at this point. And Mr. Monteith squared around in his seat with a triumphant air, and even whispered to Jack that it was quite time they heard the other side of the question, and then was ashamed of himself immediately, because that was an insinuation that he thought the speaker had been one-sided and unfair in his statements, which he knew he did not and could not think. Now for the caution. We must be careful lest we confound two things that are perfectly distinct. The Bible is one thing, and human interpretations of the Bible are altogether another thing. These two things must be kept clearly apart, because the human interpretation has been modified, and will be modified a great deal more, probably, as the light of science on God's works enables us to see more deeply into the meaning of God's word, many of our old theories will go by the board. For instance, there was a time when the Christian church believed and taught that this world was made in six days of twenty-four hours each, about six thousand years ago. I was taught that when I was a child." After a while the science of geology was born. Men broke through the crust of the earth and went down to see how it was made, and they came up and said that according to the testimony of the rocks the world was hundreds of thousands of years old. They jumped to and proclaimed the conclusion that Moses was contradicted, and that Genesis was false because it was contrary to the facts of the case." Then superficial but devout theologians grew frightened, and said geology is of the devil. So the matter stood for a time, till more careful men took it up, and the theologians went down to the study of the rocks, while the geologists took up the study of the Bible, and they very soon concluded that the testimony of the rocks must stand, but that the contradiction was not between the testimony of the rocks and Genesis, but between that testimony and human interpretation of Genesis. We had been reading the Bible without minding our stops. In the first verse of Genesis we read, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, without making a pause. Now we read, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Then we stop and let all the geological ages that the rocks call for roll away, then we read the second verse. That is only one illustration. Let us keep in our minds perfectly clear the distinction between these two things. Human theories will go, probably, as human theories have gone. But it is small matter what becomes of the human, if only the grand old Bible shall stand triumphant as it stands to-night. Was it Kent Monteith who had told the boy Robert that the Bible contradicted facts in geology? Had he not instanced this very point? Had he not been entirely silent as to the explanation that Dr. Meredith had just made? Didn't he know of the explanation, or had he chosen to deceive? The expression on the boy's face told as plainly as words could have done that he was revolving these questions, and Kent Monteith found it to his comfort to shade his eyes with one hand so that his face could not be studied." but the speaker was not done with these two. Let me call your attention, he said, to the unity of this book, 
and perhaps the first view of the Bible would lead us to the conclusion that we would be less likely to find there a true interior positive unity than in any other book that we know of in the world, for it is not, after all, one book. It is made up of sixty-six different tracts or pamphlets, and these are the work of forty different writers, and these separated by fifteen hundred years. They lived in different circumstances, some of them were cultured, some were ignorant, some were in king's houses, some were fishermen on the lake of Galilee, and under all these varieties of circumstance and of intellectual constitution they sat down and wrote a book in three different languages. Surely we cannot expect to find unity in that book more than the mechanical unity given to it by the workman who binds it up in one set of covers." surely we must expect that there will be no more unity in these pamphlets than in books carelessly set on library shelves and yet the very moment we begin to study it we are impressed with the positive oneness of the doctrine that runs through it from beginning to end it is a great unity as it must be to correspond with the mind of god the unity of a cathedral not of a hut the unity of a great piece of mechanism not of a walking-stick there is a grand central truth that runs through the book from beginning to end. Man lost may be saved by the blood of sacrifice. That is the Bible from one end of it to the other. What a strange sermon it was! Kent Monteith actually lost portions of it by taking time to wonder how it happened that so much of the ground gone over between young Robert and himself should be touched upon. If it were not absurd, he might almost fancy that the boy had been detailing to the orator the doubts which had been suggested to him. It certainly was no wonder that the young artist's face burned a little. He felt so conscious that the hints which he had thrown out, viewed in the light derived from this lecture, would appear worse than shallow to the keen-brained boy. I think that Kent Monteith felt his position the more, because he was not even an honest doubter the very difficulties which he presented to others being less troublesome to him than he professed. Presently this brilliant young man sought refuge from his questioning conscience by getting into a fume with the speaker. What right had he to take this brilliant opportunity before such an audience to assail all the theories which happened to be contrary to his own? What a fool he is, said this elegant young man to himself here is a chance to immortalize himself before this magnificent assembly if he would take a subject worthy of him and show them the power of his matchless eloquence he would literally lift them to their feet in applause whereupon his better sense said to him what a fool are you don't you see how he holds this assembly will they ever forget what he has said to them to-night will you ever forget it yourself don't you know this moment that what he has said is true? Don't you believe in your soul that you will have to meet it again at the judgment and admit that you felt its truth? And is not this what angers you now? As if to press home the solemnity of these questionings, the speaker grew more personal and practical. Above all things, said he, it is important for you to study the Bible as spiritual beings, because it answers questions that you can find answered nowhere else. The profoundest questions and largest needs of humanity are spiritual. How can a man be just with God? Who will deliver my soul from going down to the pit, saying I have found a ransom? 
Who will bring peace to the weary, tempest-tossed heart? Give me answers to these questions, and I am satisfied. O ye mighty sons of science and philosophy, I sit at your feet, I open my ears to listen to your words, my anxious soul awaits your answer to these tremendous problems. Leave me in darkness concerning these, and no matter what else you tell me, life is a riddle, death is a terror, and the mysterious afterwards a horror and a woe. Let us prize the book that meets these deeper questions and larger needs of our humanity. If you are ever tempted to speak lightly or think lightly of the Bible, just sit down and imagine what the world would be without it. No Bible, a wound and no cure, a storm and no covert, a lost eternity and no ransom. Alas for us if this were all, if the ladder of science were the only stair to lead us up to God. But where science at its highest leaves us, where philosophy in its purest forms abandons us, there revealed religion takes us up. Of what use to try to make of such a sermon as this nothing but food for the intellect? Kent Monteith sat back with folded arms, and gave himself up to annoyance. He must not even grumble aloud, for this was Sabbath evening, and he was one of an audience gathered for the avowed purpose of worshipping God. That which he had been looking forward to as a lecture had been boldly advertised as a sermon. What man in his senses could grumble because it was exactly what had been promised? He must not even complain of that last sentence, clear-cut though it was. May God grant you the blessings promised in his word to them that love his truth, and ever save you from the blasting mildew of infidel folly and falsehood. At that moment Kent Monteith would have given much had he not spoken folly and falsehood to the clear-eyed boy looking over at him. End of chapter 31